stay hungry, stay foolish. And we're back for the finale of Stories, Dice and Rocks That Think. Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. We welcome back for part three of this brilliant book, Stories, Dice and Rocks That Think. Byron Reese, welcome back, sir. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you back. I was showing you my, my pin here. I was doing my best to try and get a pin for each of the acts. And uh, I managed to get one, which is a sculpture with a, that looks like it's thinking. Well, that's I'm kind of bending bending it a little bit there. but uh, <laughs> Pretty amazing that you even had that. Did you have gotten by it or you had it? I buy them whenever I see them. So I'm a total nerd. Like I buy them whenever I see them and uh, just stick them in the bank and then... They, it's like um I, do you remember that movie unbreakable and there was a guy in it mr glass of course and do you remember like he goes into the comic store and he he hits off the comics and waits for one to fall yes it's like no, that. I remember that scene exactly <laughs> that's what i'm at with my with my pins but anyway let's get into this because i you'll be no surprise to you i loved the act three i really really enjoyed it great read and uh really enjoyed it and by the way and, and as you know i was on holidays when i read it so i had that alpha wave state of reading and taking in everything so i thought we'd start with these questions that you pose at the very very top of act three you say there are a host of problems innate in humans that limit our ability to see the future clearly can we fix them you ask debug our faulty intellects not a chance you tell us there are reasons the way why we are the way we are we are optimized for our purposes not the least of which is thinking in stories not logic so we did something else instead we thought rocks how to think intrigued so am i over to you byron reese well rocks that think is a metaphor of course for a computer and i think that to set up uh, act three what happened is we came out we had in act two we learned what probability was we understood the future and we learned how to predict it and we did that with paper, pencil, and the slide rule until one day society's complexity went past uh, what we could kind of do with the legal pad and a ballpoint pen. Uh, and so we said, you know, we need to build machines just like we built machines that did our physical toil. We need to build machines to do our mental toil. I picked an arbitrary date of, I think, 1952 when we spun up the first transistor computer, because that really is the forerunner of, of all the ones we have now. And uh, and that is where we are right now. I wanted to jump into some of the stuff you talk about that, like like you were saying in part two and act two, you the way you write is you find this knowledge and you try and pepper it through the book and where you're kind of like going, wow, I never knew that. One of the things I really loved was, as you say, our bodies run on about 100 watts of power, roughly a quarter of that is, which is needed to power our brains which is about a millionth of what a supercomputer requires to do far less. And you say we made huge leaps of progress over the centuries. And I thought we'd share the chapter on progress. And what I found really interesting, I never thought of that, that it wasn't just, you know, people say, well, the way you build your businesses like you've done with your businesses is hire good people because you get more bandwidth. Well, this is energy. And I thought, well, it was this outsourcing of the energy requirement that was another way to actually progress humanity. 
Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's dive into that. Cause there's really two things going on. There's a, that one that you mentioned, our bodies consume a uh, hundred Watts of power. And then um, some time ago we learned how to domesticate some animals and oxen uh, consume twice as much, uh, twice as many calories as we do. So they run on 200 Watts and man, the minute you could like, get a couple of oxen. Well, you were in business. You had your hundred Watts and then you had another 400 and all of a sudden you were able to vastly increase your output. You can tell we were built for these brains because, you know, while I said that 25% of our uh, calories are used to maintain them when you're a baby, it's like 90%. All you are is a brain with a digestive tract waiting to grow up. And you think about a baby like barely moving, but their brain has to still do all this stuff like ours do. So we learned how to harness uh, animals. And then uh, we learned a little trick. All this sunlight fell on the earth a long time ago. And it's really interesting why we have access to that sunlight, that energy. And uh, in part, it's because you have to picture way back in the day, that uh, you have to picture trees, I mean, mushrooms the size of trees. And, and uh, so that's what lived on the, on the land. No, um, no trees at that point. And when it would fall over and die, it, uh, we hadn't evolved the bacteria that could break it down. So it would accumulate. And, and then stuff would grow out of that. And then it would fall over and then stuff would go out of that and it would fall over until it gets 200 feet thick or something. And then uh, the heat and the pressure just presses all that down and it becomes coal. And that is all that sunlight that fell on the earth all those years ago. And eventually the microbes did evolve that could uh, break it down. But that's why we have these huge coal deposits because we luckily didn't have the, um, we didn't have the, uh, you know, microbe that could, that could, turn that stuff, release it. And so we get to, and so we learned how to build machinery that even increased that number of Watts that we could burn, uh, dramatically. And now in the West, the average person uses about 10,000 Watts of power constantly. So now our bodies are just this tiny, tiny fraction of the energy we have at our disposal. Now that's only half of really what uh, gave us progress. The other half is something different, which is the way that we learned how to accumulate knowledge. Now, for the longest time, for millions and millions of years, every creature on this planet could only write down stuff to remember it in one place. And that was in their DNA and it uh, works like works great. It gets a monarch butterfly from Canada to Mexico and all the way back to the same milkweed plant it left from, even though four generations of monarchs have passed, like uh, it's all in there uh, in the alphabet, in the DNA somewhere. But then what happened that we talked about in act one is we got language. And language, although, you know, at first I said, well, the primary thing is it allows us to think, then it allows us to communicate. But what it really does, the cool thing about it is it becomes our new genome. Uh, yes, you, your, your biological genome is still in you, but you have a mental gen genome as well. 
and and you can store stuff there. So when somebody says, uh, you know, here's how you could drive from Canada to Mexico and back again, we don't have to learn that in 20 years. We have to learn it uh, one time and remember it. And so all of a sudden we could remember things that uh, episodic memory, the memory of specific things in the past and that supercharged then though, that would be a lot like that meant that not only did I inherit the accumulated genome of everybody who lived before me, but I inherited their mental genome or at least a portion of it. The parts that come down to us, the parts that's preserved in theory, it's supposed to be the best parts, you know, Plato, but not, you know, Plato's, uh, a brother who wrote limericks or something, right? Like it, it tries to keep good stuff, but just like your own DNA is full of junk DNA, you know, our mind, our minds are as well. Basically we have all this other, you know, all these Gilligan's Island episodes in there that, uh, that take up, you know, a lot of space and aren't all that useful. Um, but then, but then it got, it got real as they say, and, uh, we learned how to write. And then that became, then we became a species with a single genome and that's everything that's been written. And again, a lot of junk DNA out there, but you come to this paradox, which is I first learned about this when I read an essay back in the eighties called I pencil by a guy named Leonard Reed. And he pointed out that nobody knows how to make a pencil not a person on this planet who could like mine the ore to make that feral and then process it and turn it into steel and then roll the steel out and all of that. Like nobody knows how to make it. And then you say, well, then how does it get made? How does it get made? It gets made because the species knows how to make it. The genome of the species knows how to make it. You know how to do a little part and somebody else knows how to do a little part. Somebody else knows how to do a little part. And that, uh, that's kind of like, crazy because you take something like a smartphone now you know your body has 30 something different elements in it smartphone has 60 elements like that thing's harder to make than you are and uh and how does that come together how does that cobalt and everything come and get refined to come together and all of it just the um, mind-boggling complexity of how you would build a smartphone is um is stored in the, in the planet planetary genome. So that's kind of the setup. We, we've learned how to, uh, essentially, uh, magnify our power consumption past our hundred Watts. And we've learned how to supercharge our genome by taking it and making it non, you know, making it mental and then making it in all the books. And so the last thing I'll say about that is, you are born to an accumulation of knowledge that uh, Leonardo da Vinci, in spite of all of his genius, never had access to. And Leonardo was born into a, uh, a, a heritage and a group of knowledge and all that Marcus Aurelius couldn't have ever imagined and all the way back. So our progress accumulates because of this. Now, it does all have to be carefully handed down from generation to generation. You drop the ball one time and it resets it back to the original and we, we start all over again. Uh, but that that's unlikely to happen. Uh, you know, we have to be, we have to understand, you know, that we're kind of guardians of, 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 of that, but 
it kind of naturally wants to preserve itself. So that's our world today. We magnified our power consumption. We use technology to even make that even more effective. And then we store knowledge now distributed in a planetary brain, not only in our individual brains. I love that. And and where, where I where I thought about this was we talked about previously about ants. <laughs> we were making we were talking a lot about ants, but you were talking about the ant working as one, the ant hive or the you know, and the same with bees, your your beekeeping experience, not bookkeeping. And that that idea of working as an agora, as a hive mind being so important. But then I also thought about the monarch that we talked about that this handing on of the knowledge from generation to generation. But then there's this transformational one that kind of goes on with all the knowledge of the previous generations. And as you say, at this stage, each phase of progression happened quicker than the previous one. And then there's a jump to beyond biology. And this is where we jump into from brains that think to rocks that think. And this is the huge change where the vast intellect becomes something totally different again. I'm writing a new book about superorganisms and kind of, so I, I'm trying to think, you know, your body is a superorganism. Why, why is that? Well, you're made of cells and those cells all live and they all come together and they make you. But what are you? Like you're, you're not a cell. You're not a primary unit of life the way a cell is. Cells are made of only non-living things. So they that's the beginning of life right there, our cells. You're something different, like you're a system uh, of, of cooperating cells who have, have come together for some purpose we do not know, and they, uh, they come together and they form you. Uh, you haven't, you know, a unity about you. You feel like one person. But uh, you're really a cacophony of these all the cellular action, and that um, that's a big mystery. Like we don't know how that comes about. Like there, we don't know what exactly we are. We don't know if we are a brain or a mind or a soul or a body or a system or an illusion. There may not even really be a you, uh, and then this, you know. So the the, the book tries to, to kind of get at that. What happens when that stuff comes together? So what we hope to do, what we hope to do, you know, I, I made that remark earlier about you know Plato's brother who wrote the limericks or whatever. Kind of everything we produce uh, goes in libraries, and you know, matter one way or the other. Like you can picture a library being full of dusty books no one reads and you know that's sort of where everything goes it's like that last scene of the indiana jones movie that first one where they wheel the ark into that warehouse and it's just all it's just all boxes that have very you know whatever that's sort of what our knowledge is like now very hard to find anything i mean we have search engines that help us find you know casual searches but uh, it's hard to bring that information together, even if you had it all, like just mentally, we're not up to it. Uh, so what we said we should do is we should build machines that can and take it all and they can answer all the questions we don't know how to answer. And that's what we hope. And then after we did that, we realized, uh, 
it was no longer a computation that was the problem. It was the data. It was really hard to like get clean data sets and then to train models on it. And you, you had to be involved and, and we just gummed things up. And so we said, well, let's just start snapping um, sensors onto these computers. They'll collect their own data and then they'll figure out the patterns in it and they'll make predictions. You know, I should note before we get, before we leave this topic, I should note that uh, I don't really believe in AI in the sense that, you know, there's two kind of, I think, unrelated things the word means. Uh, one of them is uh, what we have. AI, like your GPS in your car or your spam filter in your email, you know, we, we have carefully trained it to do one thing and it does that thing. And it's marvelous technology. It requires a lot of data about the past. It requires finding patterns in it, finding out when those patterns apply and using it to make recommendations about the future. That's true. If we never made any more advances in computers or, or artificial intelligence or anything, we've got 40 years worth of work to do just because the gap between what we know how to do and what we've done already is so huge. However, at least in the news right now, uh, there's a lot of talk about a different kind of artificial intelligence, and that is uh, general intelligence. That's what you see in the movies, right? That's like um, C-3PO or Commander Data or, or Eve from Ex Machina or Scarlett Johansson, her, or it's those things. And that is not generally believed to be this other version kind of on steroids. To do that kind of stuff, you need a different approach. The future is not always like the past. And sometimes we don't know anything about the past. Like humans have all these capabilities, we, you know, creativity as an example, that doesn't just, I don't think, come from studying the past. So can we build this other thing? Can we build that computer that's as versatile as us? I am in the small minority of uh, people in the AI world who don't believe it because I think that, well, it's, it's all predicated on an assumption that people are machines. And if we are machines and then that is right, like we'll build a mechanical person someday, but it's unclear to me that we uh, are machines. After all, we, we have these brains we don't understand and we have these minds that, emerge from that and somehow consciousness comes from that and just to like assert well we're going to be able to build that i i mean i could very easily be wrong but i don't believe uh that's a really possible thing but that's good because we don't need that frankly what we need is more of the other stuff that um kind of the bread and butter kind of ai that solves real problems and and uh magnifies what people are able to do and that's what we know how to build. And, and I think that's what we're going to have. So I don't think there's anything about the technology that's inherently fearful. Like, I'm not afraid of it. I just think that, um, have you ever heard, have you ever heard of the cargo cults? Only uh, the Serge Gainsbourg uh, song called Cargo Cult. So back in World War II in the Pacific, um, oftentimes, you know, as, as the allies were making their way through these islands, they would get um, planes, they would build makeshift airports and the planes would land and then they would offload all this cargo that 
that the soldiers needed. And they always, you know, shared it with the local population who thought, wow, this is pretty cool. You build an airport and then a plane lands and you get all this stuff. Like it's, it's incredible. So they just started building kind of imitation landing strips. Uh, and instead of, they didn't, you know, maybe have the headphones that the radio operator used. So they used, you know, two coconut halves or what, like something out of the aforementioned Gilligan's Island. They would, they would use, uh, they would sometimes build fake planes out of, uh, out of, um, you know, plants, the way like duck hunters use decoys to lure in the ducks, hope to lure in the, the, the planes. Of course, the planes never landed because there was a much more to it than, than, than that. And I think intelligence, human intelligence is like that. And I think people trying to build general intelligence are, part of a a cargo cult. They think, you know, if we can just make this thing and it does the superficial things like a human, then by golly, it's going to be a a human. The planes are going to start landing and it's going to bring us a cure for cancer. And uh, that's what they hope. And I'm, I'm just not part of that, uh, of that, but I could be wrong. (laughs) Like I said, I find it so interesting, man. I, I like, you know, you had your own podcast for years and you interviewed all the leading experts in AI. And one of the amazing things that happen when you have a podcast is when you collect enough dots, which are the interviews, that they start to connect in ways that you couldn't imagine before. And one of the amazing serendipities on, that happens is because you, you, you keep getting a different lens through which to see. And, you know, this is why I personally I get so much out of doing the show myself, like really, really great knowledge. And when I was on holidays, I was saying I was reading your your act three, but I was also reading in preparation for an interview with Ian McGilchrist on this magnificent book. And you would love it, man. It's called The Matter With Things. And it's about the divided brain, left and right hemisphere. And but it's the most complete work. I, as I said to him, it's an oeuvre. It's a French work. It's a work. Uh, it's three and a half thousand pages. It will take you a year to read it because it takes so long to absorb the information. But the chapter I was reading was on intuition. And he was talking about experts. And that when you look at any experts, including master chess players, and this you you've talked about Kasparov in in your work, you've talked about him being beaten by Deep Blue in the Fourth Age as well, and and it dawned on me it was like he was talking about many expert chess players make the move really quickly because they make it instinctively, and instinctively that's the right hemisphere, this creative brain, and all the AI is doing is looking at the analytical logical side just scanning all the pre-programmed moves and it doesn't have any intuition and that was the penny drop moment for what you're saying there to me that you cannot make that that is coming from somewhere different that is coming from somewhere that we don't understand that is like the universal agora intelligence it's coming from sensations in the gut uh, literally the brain and the gut that you can't emulate in machines so that that I just want to throw that because that it was just this beautiful moment of these coming together of these two books that I was like on ah it was serendipity beautiful yeah I mean um I, I I would agree with all of that I mean I don't think we are just our brains um they uh they're these flatworms that actually have a brain 
And if you cut their head off with their brain, give it two weeks, it'll grow back. And yet they remember uh, things from before they cut the head off. There was a guy who would train rats to run mazes and he would then operate on the rats and remove different parts of the brain. And he never could find any spot he could remove that uh, would, would break their ability to go through the, the maze. Or I don't know, another kind of example is like, if I said name, oh, I don't know, uh, an alphabetical list of animals, you would go, okay, A, alligator, B, badger, C, like you would be kind of doing that one at a time, right? But if you, if you look at a concert pianist who is playing this incredibly complicated piece, they aren't hitting a note and then a question goes to the brain and says, well, what next? And then it comes back and then they hit another note and then it says, okay, now what? And then there's something else completely going on there. Like there's all, all of that kind of stuff that just tells us that I think our knowledge is distributed throughout our bodies. I, I vaguely kind of believe in cellular memory that uh, I mean, there's epigenetic. I mean, there's all this stuff going on that we just are not privy to. So to think somehow that we're going to be able to engineer something of that complexity, uh, I'm just not convinced. I guess that's the way I would say it. I just haven't been convinced. I loved the monarch. You gave me that gift of the monarch going around the planet. I, I didn't know that beautiful story. And um, and you plant your milkweeds in the back. Hopefully they'll come and they'll be part of the journey for you. But one of the things that dawned me as well was you mentioned epigenetics there. And there's this amazing study on rats where, they, or it was mice actually, and, and they, they artificially created the fear of cherry blossom by releasing the smell into the cages and then giving them a little mild shock. And then because of the quick cycle of the litters, the next generation they put little brain scanners on them and they all had the fear and then the next generation had the fear and it was never originally their fear and it's stuff like that that you how are you going to program that like that is not programmable it's just uh amazing there are good examples of that when um when she elegant when this little nematode worm eats this one bacteria uh it makes it sick basically it doesn't kill it but it grabs a hunk of that thing's RNA and sticks it in its own genome. And then four generations, you get four generations that they know not to eat that thing. Uh, you know, which I, I, uh, you know, we can't reproduce any of these in humans. So uh, we just have to assume, that, you know, we have some vaguely equivalent uh, structure. Do you know, uh, do I write in this book about C. elegans, the nematode worm and the 302 neurons? You do, man, and and I have it here. Yeah, yeah. You say four out of five animals on the planet are tiny nematode worms, each about as long as a hair is wide. They reach that level of evolutionary success with a brain of just three three hundred and two neurons. The industrious honeybee's brain has a million neurons and uses them to build complex multi generational societies. An octopus has half a billion neurons with which it ha may have achieved consciousness, and then. There we are with brains of a hundred billion neurons. Beautifully said. Oh, thank you. But did I go into, uh, let me, let me talk about the nematode. I, I don't know if this is in that book. So nematode's got 302 neurons. He's got 969 cells, got 302 neurons. Uh, the, the 302 neurons have about 7,700 connections between them. And it's thought in the connections. That's where 
That's the magic. Uh, and so there's a group called the Open Worm Project. And what they've been doing for over a decade is trying to program behavior in a hypothetical digital neuron such that if they put 302 of them arranged just like the nematode and they connect them just like the nematodes, you want that thing to start acting like a nematode swimming around in the computer. Now that would be something that would be something like, okay, we have now said, you know, we know how a neuron works and we can, we can model it. Now, not only have they, and I'm a huge admirer of the project. Like I go check in on it a lot. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm I, I kind of like the dedication to it, uh, but there are people associated with it who say they may never do it. They may never figure it out. And, you know, if, if we can't figure out how the 302 neuron and two of them are mysteriously not connected to the other 300, like go figure. Anyway, if we can't figure out how those come together to make a nematode worm, what chance do we have, uh, you know, to kind of like, not just figure out our own brains, but how we process intelligence overall. That's why I just am not, uh, well, I've said it already that I'm not a believer that I think there are limits that we're going to hit with what we can do with computers because they aren't people and they, they have, uh, they're fast and they have all these wonderful things, but that doesn't mean they can do anything that we can do. I thought Byron again, and by the way, the fourth age is a fantastic book. Some of those uh, examples Byron mentions in the fourth age, but then uh, gives a kind of an overview of artificial intelligence gives us a little primer again in act three of this book so i'm going to jump past that primer and get to the ai that you're particularly interested in in towards this collective intelligence or the agora this super organism which is machine learning so maybe you'll take us through that a little bit building towards the crescendo of this act we kind of think we make decisions based on information and data uh, I don't, I think our great, great grandchildren are going to see us a little differently. They're going to see us as, uh, largely going through life, just sort of making decisions on instincts to your, to your point, just sort of capriciously deciding stuff. Like, where am I going to eat? I don't know. I guess I'll go to that pizza place. You might go to the pizza place and not enjoy it or, or whatever. Like you just make decisions all day long and. And what do you have? You may have like a couple of pieces of data or something you heard from somebody. Uh, that's very different. Like that, we guess, we kind of guess uh, our way through life. I, I think I used the phrase like drunken sailors on shore leave. You know, we're just like wandering around, making decisions. You know, I'll go to college there. I'll take that job. I'll move to that city just like we know what we're doing. Um now, imagine a, a different setup. Imagine for a moment that uh, everything you did was recorded. And don't worry about privacy yet. Believe me, we'll worry about it in a minute. But just put that aside. Just think about the technology for a moment. What if like every word I'm saying gets recorded, uh, everything I look at with my eyes, whether my eyes dilate or not, every bite of food I eat, I eat with a utensil that has a sensor in it, tells exactly what's in that thing. Uh, every, everybody, I'm, everybody I see, every place I go, every breath I take, every time my heart beats. Like, imagine if you could actually record it all. We, uh, we're in the middle of building that world. Uh, we record more and more. 
not out of some like massive, big, let's record everything. But people are like, I want, um, you know, I don't want spam email anymore. Well, guess what? It has to read every email to figure out which ones are spam. Uh, you know, so we kind of build this world, this data collecting world a little bit at a time, uh, but we're definitely building it. I don't know how you stop building it. And and you contrast that to like, and so kind of the long story of our species is we learn stuff and then forget it and then they die. And then somebody else comes along and learns it and passes it along to somebody else and they forget it. And then they die and then somebody else finally learns it and they pass it along to somebody who butchers it and gets it all wrong. Then they die. And, and every now that's like the story of our world. You just wonder all the stuff that uh, people have come up with and have forgotten. Uh, now imagine with that thing I was just talking about this digital echo of yourself where every single thing you do generates data. And not just data, but data about the outcome. Well, what happened when you did all that? And then imagine, just imagine we had 100 years worth of this. That goes back to 1922. Imagine you had 100 years of everything everybody did and what happened. Well, now all of a sudden you have something very different. You have a way to optimize your own life. You could say, I am thinking of moving to blank. And then it's all of this data that can now inform whether that's a good decision or not. Now, it's still your choice. Nothing's going to make it for you. But when, I think in the book I talk about, if you're out metal detecting on a beach, you know, you got your metal detector and you're sweeping, you can dig anywhere on that beach you want to. But the metal detector buzzes over something. I dig there. Like That's the purpose of the metal detector. Not making me dig there, but if I'm smart, I will. And I dig there and just a pull tab or whatever. Any case. Um, the system's going to tell you this stuff. And, and eventually, I think over time, we're just going to be like, all right, I'll, I'll dig there. Why, where else would I dig? And more and more, we're going to uh, let machines make more decisions for us, with us, of course, having the final approval. Now, that people of my age, you know, I'm uh, 53. Uh, that's like right on this border of like, is that weird and creepy or not? Like, I think in two or three generations, the idea that some knowledge base of all the activity of all the people and all the learning from it will inform all of my choices. Yeah. You know, if your life is the sum total of the decisions that you make and you make 500 decisions a day, imagine if you could do it 3% better. Well, that compounds over every day of your life. And then imagine if you do it 100% better and 200%. Like, what if you really get good at it? Then you live an entirely different kind of life, informed by data. Uh, and what it is, is a true society. It's like the life experiences of every person go in together to make everybody else's life better. And that's what you want. That over time, our species learns. And we had this, not only the species-wide genome, but now a species-wide memory. And that uh, is a different world than what we have. Now, I then go and say, well, you know, a lot of ways this can go south, uh, but we can come to those in a minute. Like, that's the overarching thing of what it seems like we're doing with data collection, computers, artificial intelligence, 
this was not my quote, but um, somebody once tweeted, uh, Orwell's mistake was that uh, he didn't realize we would be the ones who bought the cameras. And uh, our only worry would be nobody was watching. Yeah. Uh, you know, not that we're like averse to sharing our lives that, and I'll just say one more thing about that, but I mean, we kind of know it because if you think about it, you go back 20 years, 30 years. Yeah. We'll go back 30 years. People didn't produce anything. Like they didn't produce natural. They didn't write. Like most people didn't write ever. It was a lot of hassle. You get the typewriter out and then who's going to read it? Where are you going to publish it? And nobody, and people didn't really do art as much like artists did, but, and then people didn't make movies or, you know, movie makers did, but regular people didn't. And all of these technologies came along. And then we find out people, everybody, not everybody, but you give people a way to, to distribute music. And all of a sudden everybody starts making music and you give people a way to distribute video and boom, you get YouTube and you, you invent blogging. And then you find a hundred million people have things they wanted to say. Uh, and so overall, these technologies are hugely empowering because they do allow us to try to live to our maximum potential. And if in fact, we believe that knowledge is power, if knowledge is power, then how much empowerment would that be to have the life experiences of everyone who lived the last hundred years informing every decision you're making? Maybe that's somebody's idea of a very bad future. <laughs> like, even if it wasn't misused, I don't know. I, I love this part of the book. And I, I really love you to share a couple of great examples of pattern recognition that we just can't see. But then you give some examples of ones that we did eventually see, I, I'll give an example personally. So I remember going to the dentist once. And this lady dentist was just looking at my mouth. And she goes, she she goes, are you from this specific point in Ireland, this specific town in the country? And I was like, going, going, yeah, like, which is like, she wouldn't have known that. And I go, well, how can you tell? And she goes by your the pattern of decay on your teeth. I did it as my thesis in college. And you're from this place because the water, it's a, you know, a small town in, in, in the countryside. And she goes, the water there lacked fluoride and lacked this. And this is the pattern I saw. And I was like, wow. And then you talk about because you said this could go south. You talk about it going south with hookworms in the south, which is an amazing story that I'd love you to share. And ones that I told my kids about was camel dung <laughs> and brown frogs and milk for the love of god yeah so that's two real examples from history one is that um uh, in the in the early 1900s a common cure if you got dysentery and you happen to live in egypt was follow a camel around until um they went to the bathroom and then pick up I don't know if it's technically manure or feces or what you would call it from a camel and eat it. And that in fact would cure your dysentery. Now you got to stop and think like who figured that out? Not who was eating camel dung to begin with, but 
had to be enough people where some had dysentery and some didn't. And they're like, wow, all those people with dysentery got better. <laughs> I, I tell, I was, I was telling my kids about this on holidays and they're only young. <laughs> my, my older son goes, who's the first person who did that? <laughs> I don't know. He's like, Hey, check this out. <laughs> and the thing is, is it wouldn't happen in five minutes. So you would have to be like, I think that camel dung I ate day before yesterday. And it had to be fresh and warm, it turned out, because <laughs> it had uh, basically antibiotics in it. That, uh, hey, hey, Byron, uh, I did what you told me, man. It didn't work out. Oh, was it steaming? Was it steaming? Oh, no. Right. <laughs> it has to be steaming. All right, I'll go back. <laughs> Find a camel. Um, and they've actually taken uh, what lived in it and turned it into a convenient pill. Uh, which is not branded camel dung. And then another one was in Russia uh, to keep your milk, <laughs> keep your milk fresh. They figured out if you put a brown frog in it, it would stay fresh. Now we know that the frog secretes a kind of antibiotic that keeps the milk fresh, but you're in the same boat. Like who decided to, I'm just going to put a frog in my gallon of milk. And then, and then they, somebody who did it, maybe a lot of people were doing that. I don't know. Some people uh, were like, I noticed my milk lasted longer. And then they're like, well, I didn't put a frog in mine. And mine went sour. And they're like, well, you borrow my frog. And <laughs> you got the wrong frog, man. Was it brown? Right. No. That's right. But That's right. You got that green frog, a tree frog. <laughs> those are two. Not only do you have to think. That's one of those things that people figured out and forgot. Like, it, I doubt the first person who ate camel, maybe. The first person who happened to eat camel dung noticed it cured the dysentery and went around and made it their life's goal to tell everybody that. Uh, but at some time, you somebody probably had to learn it and somebody else and somebody else and somebody else had to like confirm it. Like, no, it really does work. Uh, but then there were other things that we kind of didn't uh, find out that would have been in the data, like uh, not having iodine, not having enough iodine in diets. You would be able to see that in data. Uh, may um may have had a it was a they believe it had like a five iq point difference but it could have been as many as 15 in some areas that had real iodine deficiency you had hookworms in the south because they didn't build the the uh they didn't dig the uh outhouses deep enough and you had to have them over a certain depth so that worms couldn't get up and if you have hookworms and you walk around barefoot they'll come in you and they'll make you lethargic and um, it infected a huge number of people, and nobody knew. Nobody knew that's what it was. And then you say, well, why was it in the southern United States and not the northern? And it's because, like, by 1920, the north, which is wealthier, had indoor plumbing almost everywhere. The south still didn't, still used uh, outhouses. And so, boom, you, you figure that out. Hey, dig your privy hole deeper, and uh, you're going to be smarter. And, uh, and now the thing, of course, is there could be – a hundred other things like that we're doing wrong. Like, you know, we, our natural um, IQ might be 300 for all I know, but, uh, you know, because we eat egg whites or I don't know, who knows, right? Uh, we're, we're stuck at our hundred. Like who knows what is in the data that would make all of our lives better. <laughs> I, I couldn't, when I was reading about the hookworms, uh, all I could hear in my head was, Ding a ling, ding 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 ding. <laughs> I go, whoa, 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 whoa! Don't do anything. Do you have hookworms? 
I, I won't go there, man. I won't go there. But ultimately, what, what I, I, I agree totally with you. And, and I, you, know, you know, maybe I'm a weirdo, but I naturally had these thoughts when I was younger. I was kind of going, surely there's patterns or, or no, I didn't even use that language. You know, the language in my head to think was kind of there's there's loads of things like I, I got injured a lot when I was playing sport and I was like kind of going there's no data to show me what I'm doing wrong. And, and you know, I'm putting all this effort in. And I, I would just hate to know that I was doing all this effort. And I was actually making myself injured rather than doing less and actually being more productive. And that's ultimately what I what I really uh, I'm so optimistic about with the the combination of human and machine, the centaur coming together to create something absolutely totally different. And where I'm going with that is you too. And, and I really remember this from our first episode together on the fourth age when we did that a few years ago was you're an absolute tech om optimist, like all this work. Uh, there's a lot of dystopian thinking about AI. You're a utopian thinker about AI. And I thought your final message on that, I, I have a quote, by the way, that I'd, I'd love to share that that really does encapsulate that. But before I even go there, your tech optimism is 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 very welcome, and I'd love you to share why you're a tech optimist. Well, I'm not one like an a priori uh, commitment to it. Like I will find a silver lining to anything. I'm I'm, I'm really not like uh, I, I think it's a a reasoned conclusion from just a few very few simple things that I know. Uh, one of them is. Um, you know, we're, we're a timid, we were a timid species, like it rewarded us because uh, if you saw a big rock and thought it was a bear and ran away, oh, it's a bear, run. You were better off than if you saw a bear and said, I bet that thing's just a rock and stayed put. So, you know, by, by being kind of skittish and nervous about new things and all of that, it served us well. But we have to like, or I at least have to start by saying, okay, that's probably how I'm coded. Uh, and, then, and now I want to mentally like overcome that. And so I, I put that aside and say, you know, maybe my instinct would be to be fearful. But what are the facts? And the facts as I see them are, I think humanity hit a low point um, 60,000, 70,000, 50,000 years ago. We hit a population bottleneck, and you can kind of tell that from um, the genetic diversity we had. The less genetic diversity uh, humans have um, implies the population got really tiny. Humans have loaded genetic diversity. Two chimps who live on opposite sides of a river have more genetic diversity than two people living in different hemispheres with uh, different ethnicities and everything. We're... Cheetahs, by the way, are the other extreme. We probably got down to 40 cheetahs. So every cheetah alive is a clone, really, of every other cheetah. Uh, and that's not healthy for species generally. But we got down to a bottleneck, and you can debate how small it was. But let's just, I'm not even going to use the lowest number. Let's just say we got down to a 1,000 mating pairs of humans. That would be a reasonable guess. And... Uh, and then you say, wow, a thousand mating pairs of humans. And, and you wouldn't have bet on us back then, right? Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't be the ones you'd be like, that's the species is going to kill it. 
but it was. And why? Why? Because we learned um, we learned this trick of multiplying what we're able to do by accessing energy, by creating technology, which is how to magnify our own abilities. And uh, we've consistently improved the lot of uh, the life uh, for not enough people, but uh, ever more people. And if you look at any country, you could say, is the United States better than it was 100 years ago? And then is, um, I mean, just pick any, any country, is uh, any of them, any country. And, you know, you could compare them to 100 years ago. And I would be willing to bet that almost by any measure you could imagine, look at life expectancy, look at average income, look at infant mortality, self-government, status of women, individual liberty, all these different measures of progress, probably wherever, what country you just picked, things are better now than they were a hundred years ago. So that's kind of the second thing. And then the third thing that I believe is that um, we're good that on balance, more people are uh, good than bad. Um, we would not have survived. I think if we were disproportionately bad, I'll give you a real example. I uh, recently sold something on eBay and as I have for 24 years. Oh, surely an ax head. And so I sold something on eBay and I packed it carefully and shipped it to the recipient and the recipient opened it and then filed a claim against me and said, I just sent them a brick and wanted their money back. I did not send them a brick. I sent them the item that they bought, but they were like, ah, no, all he did was put a brick in the box. And um, if you think about it, uh, if very many people did that, 2%, 3%, 4%, you would break the credit cards. Like they can't handle that much fraud uh, without, you know, the, the, the commissions, the, the rates having to go way up. The fact that um, credit cards can charge vendors 2.5% and then give a 2% rebate to the cardholder tells you there's very little of that kind of stuff that the system largely works and it's largely a trust-based system. Um, so if you start with all of that and you say, well, our nature is to be somewhat timid. We want to mentally understand that's a predisposition. Second, we, um, we're using, uh, we're using technology to uh, care for more people, provide for more people, we, that manifests in progress in different countries, some regrettably much slower than others. And people are overwhelmingly good, not bad. More people want to build than destroy. I think if you put all that together and you say, okay, we've had 10,000 years now of pretty good progress. I don't know by what logic you say, yeah, but it's over. That's it. Because I don't know really that anything's remarkably changed. Um, and so that's why I'm an optimist. I'm, and, and it's more than just, it's almost an inevitability at some point. Like at some point you have so much information and, you know, there was a time in our past where there just wasn't enough stuff. Like wasn't enough food for everybody. There wasn't enough time for everybody to go to school and there wasn't enough uh, leisure for everybody because survival was a full-time job. All of these things. Now we're overcoming those things right and left. There's now plenty of food. The United States, I'm sad to say, throws away enough food to feed all the hungry people in the world. 
now we, we still need to figure out how to be better people and make sure everybody gets it. But one by one, we're, we're kind of sloughing off these gating factors of our history. That's why I'm an optimist. I don't think I can top that, man. I, ha I have a quote, but I'll leave it to people in the book. Maybe I'll just mention the Easter egg you left in the, the epilogue, <laughs> which uh, the real reason for stories, one of the main reasons for stories, which is so, so important. And to your point there, in a time of rapid change, this re reason behind stories is so important. But uh, maybe you'll finish on that. Maybe you'll finish on that point, because it, it's probably the most important one of all the reasons for stories. And before you even do that, where can people find you? We said this before, but some people maybe join us for the first time. Where can people find you? You do keynotes, you do workshops, you also write prolifically, even other book in the pipeline. Where Where is the HQ for the hive mind that is Byron Reese? I'm easy to find. I'm Byron Reese anywhere. So you can go to byronreese.com or uh, Byron Reese on Twitter or Byron Reese anywhere. I mean, my email address is byronreese at gmail. Like, um, easy to get a hold of. So the book gives 20 purposes of stories, and that's way at the front. And then there's an epilogue on the last page. And it opens with sometimes the story doesn't make sense until the very end. This is from memory. I may be getting part of it wrong. And, and I, and I ask, like, there's kind of two ways to look at life. And one of them, you know, one narrative of what we are is uh, you're a bag of chemicals and chemical reactions, really, and electrical impulses. And you kind of careen randomly. You're a localized area that defies entropy. <laughs> you kind of careen around and maybe bump into another bag and then careen and bump into another bag. And then finally, someday you die and you dissipate. And you don't actually, there's actually no meaning to any of it. That's, it's kind of a very bleak way of seeing life. Then there's another view that says that life, um, you know, your, your life is not just a series of connected events. One, you know, a series of connected minutes throughout your whole life that just sort of happen. And you just, uh, and that's where it leads into say, there's actually a 21st purpose of stories. It's the one I left out. It's the big one, saved it for the end, big finish. And it's that stories give life meaning that, if you stop thinking, if, if you don't think of people as bags of chemicals careening around and pointless and empty and all of that, and instead you say uh, that everybody's life has meaning and purpose and that everybody's life uh, is a story, that it's made of stories. Uh, there was a, not Adams, that's actually a, a quote from someone in, in the book. Um, and that to me, you know, I think I close by saying that. Um, Carl Sagan wrote that beautiful piece about like we're made of star stuff, like all the heavy elements that we're made out of came, must have come from exploding stars. You know, the stars started out as hydrogen and uh, helium. And then as fusion happens, the heavier minerals, uh, heavier elements form, and then the star blows up. And that's what you're made out of. You're made out of star stuff. And it's a beautiful thing, but it misses, I think, misses the point of, of what we are. We aren't, uh, you know, Yoda was right. We're not this crude matter. Um, and instead, we, I think, are stories. And so it ends with the question, if we are stories, then kind of the question you have to answer in your life is, well, 
who is uh, telling the story. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful way to finish. Author of stories, dice, and rocks that think how humans learn to see the future and shape it. Byron Reese, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. I had a great time. I hope you enjoyed that series, Act 1, 2, and 3, with Byron Reese on his latest creation, Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. Thanks to our sponsor, Zai, we're able to bring you this increased content. Zai boldly transforms the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. I'll see you soon.